namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bodang Dhammang Sankang Namasami. So here we are, it's the uh, full moon night of February, uh, and it's also Magapuja, which is one of the major festivals of our year. And uh, we are, of course, uh, in the in the in the middle of our winter retreat, and in fact, about a week from now, it will be the halfway point. So time is flying by. But I just want to say that I think it's a very special time, and we're very lucky. Because, first of all, this monastery is a very busy monastery. It has many projects in hand. And also it's a very popular monastery. It's very well attended. Uh, probably one of the busiest in Europe. And so to have a little bit of quiet time for the residents, for the Sangha, is really quite essential so that they can have a chance to turn inward and to reflect and contemplate Dhamma. <clears throat> and this opportunity is so rare in the world because if we think about it, think about people in worldly occupations, they <clears throat> work very hard to earn their living. Uh, they come home, they have to do the shopping, sort out various problems with possessions and house and so on. Uh, they have only a little time to practice. And even if someone in a worldly occupation goes on holiday, often that holiday is about new sights and sounds, interesting places, things to do. And, or it's about recovering their energy after uh, exhausting themselves through the work. So, in the lay life, this is a very you know, rare opportunity. And <clears throat> as a Sangha, we're very lucky to have, the, have this chance. And that's why I'd also like to say uh, a big thank you to our, we have this winter retreat support team who are enabling uh, this to happen. And they work very hard. They seem to be working very well together. There's a good atmosphere and a harmonious atmosphere. So we're very grateful for that because it means that we can uh, proceed in our task of uh, looking inward and contemplating Dhamma and the practice. So just to say thank you again to the team, the support team. <clears throat> So what exactly is Magapuja? <clears throat> well, in Thailand, Magapuja 
is known as Sangha Day. So they have a special day for the Buddha, for the Dhamma, for the Sangha. And most of you will probably know that we have two other festival nights. Uh, one is uh, in, in, on the full moon in May, and that's Visakha Puja, which is the celebration of the Buddha, his birth, his life, his Parinibbana. Sorry, birth, enlightenment, Parinibbana. And then the second one is in, on the full moon of July, and that is Asalha Puja. And that commemorates uh, a particular event. That was the giving of the first sermon, the Dhammajakabhavatna Sutta, to the five ascetics in the deer park at Sarnath. And uh, so it commemorates Dhamma. It, it formally remembers Dhamma through that particular event. And then finally we have this Magha Puja in February. And again, this stems from a particular incident and we are told in the tradition that it occurred <clears throat> on the full moon night of February. This was fairly early on in the Buddha's ministry. <clears throat> and we're told that 1,250 arahants assembled spontaneously, came together without prior arrangement at the Buddha's cell. And... Um, these happened to be not just any old bhikkhus, but bhikkhus who had all been ordained by the Buddha himself. So they're, they're called ehi bhikkhus, because the Buddha used this term ehi bhikkhu when he ordained people in the first few years of the ministry. And so these, these arahants came together um, without prior arrangement, and then the Buddha emerged from his cell, and he gave this Awada or exhortation called the Awada Patimoka. And this was at a time before Vinaya had been established, before the code of conduct was drawn up. And so it would have been very helpful and revelatory at that time. It was a, a fairly pithy uh, exhortation, a pithy uh, summary of how a summoner should behave. And it starts by saying, patient endurance is the supreme austerity. It really lifts that quality up as being above all others. It goes on to say that Nibbana is the highest good. It talks about a samana or a, a recluse not hurting or harming any creatures. It talks about purification from greed, hatred, delusion. It talks about restraint and frugality, modest, uh, being moderate in, in one's eating, uh, dwelling in seclusion, and striving for the higher mind. So it's all in about three verses of this Avada Patimoka. So it's, it's, it is quite a celebrated teaching that he gave. And I'll try and come back in, in a little while to, to some of the Ovada Patimoka. <clears throat> so anyway, this celebration tonight centers on Sangha, one of the three jewels. And as you've probably been told, we'll, we'll involve a circumambulation tonight. So 
<clears throat> I'd like to sort of try to offer a few reflections around the, the question, sorry, the, the topic of Sangha, and maybe one or two recollections. And from that, draw together some threads, maybe with some, some kind of development of Dhamma and practice. So first of all, I'd like to just talk about some of my own initial encounters with Sangha, some of which were a little bit odd. Um, and the first, in fact, the first three of them all took place in Thailand. As far as I'm aware, I had never met Buddhist monks before or had any experience of any kind of Buddhist uh, chanting or any kind of uh, service. So I, I went to Thailand immediately following my first university course. The, the, uh, I, volu I <coughs> volunteered to be a teacher in, in Thailand on, on the edge of Bangkok in a school. And what happened was we were a group of volunteers flown to Bangkok and we were living in a hotel in the center of Bangkok and being trained in various things about Thailand and uh, how to, how to uh, behave and so on. And then on the, on the Friday of that week, uh, we were each being taken down to our, our projects uh, for a few hours and then coming back. So this was my first chance to see my project, which happened to be a school called Bangkapi School on the edge of the, the city. And uh, the school minibus came to collect me and uh, then drove me down through various suburbs out to this place called Bangkapi, or Klongchan it was called. And then we got to the school. And you can imagine I was pretty, pretty uh, nervy. You know, this is the first time I'd ever done such a job. I knew nothing about Thailand. I knew very little about teaching. And uh, anyway, we got to the school and two teachers came out to, to meet us, or meet me. And then we were walking back through the schoolyard, this fairly spacious schoolyard. And to one side of the schoolyard, there was a newly finished block of classrooms, a building. And inside that building, there were some monks. I couldn't see them, but I could hear them. And remember, with the climate in Thailand, all the windows are opened, you know, so they, to let the air come in and out, or at least in, in that particular place. So I could hear something, and it was chanting. So as we walked across the yard, I heard this chanting. I couldn't see the monks. And as I heard the chanting, something came up in my mind. And it was a voice, and it said, you should understand what they're chanting. It just came up like that. So uh, I didn't pay particular attention to that voice, I just carried on. But that was probably my initial encounter with Sangha. And then <clears throat> I was living in a village, a small little hamlet across the canal from where this school was situated. And there was a small temple there called Wat Sibenliang. And uh, I would pass the front of the temple coming out of the village or going back in. And I remember one day meeting a monk in front of the temple. And, you know, I had some tie, it was very limited. But anyway, he decided to engage me in conversation. And he was saying, basically, he was giving me instructions. He was saying, 
Don't go drinking whiskey. Don't go chasing women. A few other things like this. You know, I was listening and trying to understand. And I suppose I could have reacted badly to this or thought it was none of his business, but I didn't feel that at all. Uh, I thought, well, at least this guy's telling me something. <laughs> because what I was used to in the UK was the Church of England, where basically they don't tell you anything. <laughs> so I quite appreciated. And of course, it was a nice uh, way of trying to understand Thai. So <clears throat> the third experience, which I remember, which sticks in the mind, was going up to a place a national park called Khao Yai. And I was visiting an American Peace Corps volunteer in Khao Yai. I came away having spent a night or two there and seen something of the forest. And I came away from the park to where there was a local bus stop. I was going to take a bus into town. I was just standing there at the bus stop, looking around, and there were some villagers there. And with them there was a monk. Now this monk was behaving, I, I, looking back now I know, uh, slightly oddly. So he was, his mouth was covered in betel, red betel, and he was talking in a very kind of loose way, you know, kind of a scattered way, making lots of jokes. And then he was uh, sitting on, or down on his haunches, smoking a cigarette. Anyway, the villagers were kind of looking after him and and then this car drew up, and he got into the car. They made sure he got into the car okay, and then the, the car drove off. As, as the car drove off, they were waving, you know. Immediately, he was out of sight. They all turned around to me. And then they kind of ran at me. And they said, Pratmedi, bad monk. And... Um, you know, I hadn't been feeling any particular emotions watching this scene, but I was very impressed with this. This left a deep impression on me that here, in this situation, these villagers really had a faith in, in their religion, and they had very high expectations of monks. And the next incident was back in the UK. So um, a few years on from that, I was teaching in a hospital and one of my students was a Thai catering assistant. And we used to have occasional little chats. And one day he invited me to come. He said, would you like to come for a Thai meal? So I said, oh yes, yes, I miss Thai food. There will be some monks. Well, okay, I can handle that. So, <clears throat> I went to this event where there was Thai food and there were monks and it happened to be a grand gar garage opening. This was in the property of a very rich Thai man called Kundo in Hampstead. And the reason it was happening was that the monks had left London, they'd gone down to Chithurst and many people had expressed disappointment that they couldn't go and see a monk anymore. So when this man offered, he said, a monk could use my garage. I have an unused garage on my property. So it was renovated and redecorated and so on and made ready for actually Ajahn Menindo to take out residence. And this was the grand opening of the garage. So anyway, we, I was 
helping to give food to the monks, and then I was sitting at the back and watching, watching the Sangha, and I heard Long Paul Sumato give a talk. But the impression that was left with me watching this Sangha was that there was some kind of integrity there. So I worked in, in a field which I thought was reasonably um, positive. It was in the field of uh, communication skills and race relations and things like that. So I was doing something reasonably good. And yet I noticed within the structures in which I worked that people still did quite mean or even quite tricky things to each other. And this was a bit disappointing for me. But when I looked at the Sangha on that occasion, I felt, well, here is a sense, I just got this sense of integrity and of, of goodness or honesty. So those were some of my early encounters with Sangha. <coughs> now, in the West, some people don't particularly like Sangha. They quite like the Buddha and the Dhamma, but they rather do without the Sangha. They don't see that it has a purpose or a role. And in fact, it's, it's alien as far as they're concerned. So, you know, give me good, thorough or pure Buddhism without the Sangha, everything's okay. It's the attitude of some people. And that's why we have things like in America, we have Vipassana centers and so on, uh, lay centers, lay teachers who need Sangha. After all, uh, from the Western standpoint, everyone, every able-bodied person should be earning their own living. They should be contributing to society and paying taxes. So what are these people doing? Living off the arms of other people. And um, why are they wearing these strange robes? It's very un-British and shaving their heads. So um, in the early years, I remember on a few occasions being, being shouted at in the street. 20 years ago, they would say things like, Gandhi. Once I got, uh, the, once I got yelled at as a, a Bible basher. And uh, <clears throat> in Australia, Ajahn Yanadamo apparently had some empty beer bottles thrown at him. <laughs> Always a little bit more uh, aggressive in Australia. But, um, of course, along with all of the negativity and criticism, there's been a lot of positivity as well. So monks and nuns regularly go on Bindabhat in local towns, and they receive a lot of support. People come up very interested in them, wanting to know more about them, uh, bring them food. And we get invited to go to schools and meetings of interfaith and so forth. So there's a lot of interest as, as well as this occasional negativity towards, towards the Sangha. <clears throat> so considering Sangha as one of the three jewels or as a refuge, what we mean by that is the Aryan Sangha. So this is not always appreciated perhaps, that when we bow three times to the Rupa, we bow to the Buddha, that's clear enough. We bow to the Dhamma, and then we bow to the Sangha. But that is the Aryan Sangha, the noble Sangha. So these are people who have walked the path to the ultimate point of awakening. And uh, we talk about, if you look in the chanting book, you'll see this reference to 
four pairs, eight kinds of noble beings. So four stages, each one having a pair, one attaining to the path and, and the other attaining to the fruit at each stage. So the first stage is stream enterer, sotapanya, sotapanna. The second stage is once returner, uh, sakatagami. The third is non-returner, anagami. And the fourth is arahant. So four pairs, eight kinds of noble beings. So these are people who, in whom the Dhamma Jaku, the eye of Dhamma, has awakened. And they have seen a glimpse of reality. They have looked possibly for a brief moment into the unconditioned. And because of this experience, they are now free of doubt. Uh, they are on course. They won't fall back into a worldly existence. They will continue, whether it takes seven years or two years or whatever, and in whatever place they, they come to the enlightened state, the fully enlightened state. So these people are the living embodiment of the truth of the Buddhist teachings. And that's why we, we revere the Aryan Sangha. <clears throat> of course, it's not always understood that when we bow, it is to the Aryan Sangha. And in fact, there was a slightly amusing incident back in the 80s. We had quite a high number of Anagarikas and Anagarikas coming here in those days. And there was an Anagarika with a fairly um, robust personality and a fairly critical mind. And at that stage, uh, the person training the nuns was Ajahn Suchito. He was the abbess. So he was trying to persuade this Anagarika to, to bow, because he had a problem with bowing. And so she said to him, I can bow to the Buddha, I respect the Buddha. I can bow to the Dhamma, I respect the Dhamma. But I cannot bow to the Sangha, they are not good enough. So, uh, very skillfully, Ajahn Sajita said, Okay, just bow twice. And she used to do that. <clears throat> so, one aspect of Sangha is that it has, uh, the Sangha as created by the Buddha has lasted a fairly long time, over 2,500 years. Now, if we think about this in terms of human arrangements and human institutions, this is pretty amazing. Think of all the changes that have gone on in terms of politics and then technology and all the other aspects of human life since that period when the Buddha taught in, in the valley of the Ganges. Immense changes, unbelievable changes, and yet the Sangha is still here, somehow. So over 2,500 years. And when you think about other human institutions, well, I presume that the Sangha is the oldest institution in the world. I don't know, but I presume it is a human institution. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church uh, is about... is a little bit under 2,000 years old. The British Empire lasted for about 400 years. 
The United Kingdom, as it is presently constituted, is just over 300 years old. And Britain, inside the EU, lasted 47 years. So we see how transient these things are, how little, uh, how, how long it takes for them to last and then to disappear again. Uh, well, the Sangha has lasted over 2,500 years. And considering it has lasted that length of time, there must be something to it. There must be some reason, some benefit for it to, to still be here. So what has been the role of the Sangha? I think first of all is to, to preserve and to pass on the Dhamma. Um, whether monks are study monks or practice monks, they pass on the teachings. Now in the original period after the Buddha's Parinibbana, and even during his lifetime, they were passing on the teachings orally. So a master would have a pupil or some several pupils and pass on a, a particular uh, section of the suttas or the vinaya, and uh, they would learn in turn and pass on to somebody else. So the whole transmission was oral for about two or three hundred years. And, and until it was uh, in Sri Lanka, there was some kind of insecure period or unsafe period, and they decided to, to try to commit some of these teachings and rules to, to paper. So that's when it was, or it wasn't paper, it was palm leaves. So it was written down for the first time in Sri Lanka. Uh, but the Sangha has served to pass on the teaching, to pass on the Vinaya and the Suttas and the core teachings of the Buddha, and also to try to exemplify those teachings so that when people come in contact with the Sangha, hopefully they feel some kind of uplift or inspiration and at least some kind of respect for what's going on. So if, if the Sangha hadn't existed, think back uh, 40 years or so, I mean, if the Sangha hadn't existed, would we be here to get tonight? Very doubtful, isn't it? And uh, we presume that the Dhamma we've inherited and received is more or less what the Buddha taught. We don't know exactly, but we do, we do presume that. And it is through the setting up of the Sangha with its particular codes and its structures and the way it operates that that Dhamma has been preserved. <clears throat> now sometimes the Sangha is referred to as an sorry, <laughs> incomparable or unsurpassed field of merit. So why is it an unsurpassed field of merit? Well, I remember... Um, Back in the 90s, uh, here in Amravati, there was a monk called Ajahn Kusalo, who's now abbot in New Zealand. And he was um, running the family camps at that stage. And he had a kind of ingenious ways of trying to get ideas across to the young people. So at that time, we talked quite a lot about virtual reality. So he came up with this phrase, virtuous reality. And it went down quite well. So we could talk about virtuous, maybe we could talk about virtuous community. Um, because the Sangha is doing its best to keep the, the precepts, the vinaya, 
to live on a high moral standard or a moral standard that is consistent. And because of this, it's worthy of respect. And <clears throat> when uh, there, there is a sutta called the, what's it called? Something about offerings. Anyway, in this sutta, uh, the Buddha is explaining something about offerings. Somebody's asking him about how, how much, what, what kind of benefit offerings give. Because, of course, central to the Buddha's teaching is that if we can practice generosity, then this will bring many good things to us, make us happy and bring us many benefits. So he said, look, even if you give to an animal, the, the benefits will be a hundredfold, just giving something to an animal. If you give to a human being who has pretty low moral standard, an ordinary worldly person with a low moral standard, the benefit will be a thousandfold. If you give to uh, a, a worldly person with a, with a good moral standard, then it will be a hundred thousandfold, the benefits. And if you give to somebody, uh, sorry, a, a, an ascetic from another sect outside the Buddhist dispensation, and, and they have given up lust, let go of lust, um, then the benefits will be a hundred thousand times a hundred thousandfold. And then he goes through, you know, further and further up, the stream enterer, uh, once returner, non-returner, arahant, the, the Buddha himself, the Buddha and the Sangha. And then he's saying the benefits from giving to people of that kind are you know, exponential, you know, un uncountable. So this is what's meant by um, an incomparable field of merit. Take it or leave it. <laughs> So, <clears throat> I think one very useful thing that the Sangha does exemplify is a way to live together and to try to cooperate, to live with each other and to be part of each other and to do this in a successful way. We live in a society which is very, very competitive, ferociously competitive, and many uh, of the communal aspects of society have kind of disintegrated or, or fallen apart. Even the family is falling apart. So we have the, the what they call an atomized society, where there are lots of individuals, everyone is kind of tr fighting their own corner, trying to keep going, trying to survive, trying to earn enough money to, to keep, to keep uh, comfortable and so on. So, in contrast with that competitive, individualistic society, I think the Sangha has something to offer. It's, it talks about cooperation, harmony, and structure. We uh, work to try and help each other when we can. That doesn't mean to say that we, we don't ever have disagreements, or there aren't people with problems, and that there aren't clashes. Of course, there will be. We're human like everybody else. But there is a structure with the, you know, with the senior monk at the top. And there are ways in which we express our support for him and he can express his support for us. For example, we, on a regular basis, we will ask for forgiveness for any transgressions we may have committed. 
And we also take something called dependence. When we take dependence on the senior monk, there is a phrase which goes something like this. From this day onward, um, I will be the burden of the terror, and the terror will be my burden too. So people living in Sangha, they're not, the aim is not to self-aggrandize, to make a big name for yourself or you know, be regarded as a hero, but more to support the group effort and if necessary, give up some of our preferences in order that that can happen. So we're bound by a fairly tight rule of conduct. Um, people do help each other quite a lot. There's a lot of teaching and a lot of transmissions that go on. People teach each other how to, for example, monks teach each other how to dye cloth, how to sew, how to crochet bowl covers and things like this. There's a lot of uh, sharing and helping and the passing on of skills. And there isn't a sense that people hold back they try to offer what they can. So we all bring different skills, different abilities to that, that pool. And one of the injunctions that the Buddha left the Sangha was this, make an effort with friendliness, make an effort with friendliness. So people do try to do that. And there was a famous incident where Ananda goes to the Buddha and he says, Lord, I've been contemplating and I realize now that good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship is half of the holy life. And the Buddha replies to him, say not so, Ananda, say not so. Good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship is the whole of the holy life. And he explains it in this way. He says, if, if a bhikkhu has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, then it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And then he goes into explaining all the factors and, and how how the bhikkhu can, can cultivate them. And he says also, there is a second way, another way in which this can be understood. Because if a bhikkhu or a follower takes me as their friend, then people who are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief and despair, those people who take me as their friend can be freed from those causes of suffering. One of the most notable aspects of uh, behavior in the Sangha is that we try to be, practice harmlessness. So the first precept for all of us, for lay people and, and for the Sangha is not to kill, if possible, and not to harm living creatures, living beings. So in, <clears throat> in the monk's life, this is carried to quite an extreme. Um, so I remember, first of all, when I was living at Chithurst, I think I was an Anagarika, 
and we, I was staying in, a, in the Aloka cottage, because at that time the nuns weren't living there, and uh, there were quite a few mice in the cottage, so the way we would catch them would be with, with a humane mousetrap. So I remember catching numerous mice, taking them out to the fields and letting them go. Um, in, in this monastery, we've had problems with, with wasps and rats. I remember one, one monk had a, discovered that he had a wasp's nest in his room. So what he did was he constructed a kind of a tunnel that went from the wasp's nest to the window so that wasps could come in and out and use their nest and not disturb him. When it comes to rats... We've had many discussions about rats, and there are many arguments. People felt very heartfelt, strong feelings about not, not harming creatures. So the general policy has been to deny the rats food and just get them, encourage them to, to leave, you know, to go away from the buildings. That's in general how the Sangha has handled that. We haven't always perhaps held to the highest standard, but that's in general what we've tried to do. So monks living in kutis are asked not to kill lava in the water. They have to be very careful about that when they're emptying their uh, you know, the, the tub of water, and so on. It's you know it's just taken for granted that we respect life, or try to, um, and that we don't, for example, disturb ant hills or. Uh, create trouble for insects. In the time of the Buddha, when he set up uh, the Vasa period, one of the reasons for that was he didn't want people to go walking across the fields and destroying the crops, and also hurting uh, creatures. So there's a lot of uh, care and consideration put into this whole uh, quality of harmlessness. Now the other, by contrast, if you don't mind me saying, the other week, I came across a quotation. And this quotation is attributed to somebody called Francis Bacon. Now, for you, this may be an unknown person. But he's regarded by some people as the father of the modern scientific method. So he was living in the late uh, 16th, early 17th century. He was, he was a politician. Uh, he was helpful to Elizabeth I and then to James I, King and Queen of England. And he was also um, a philosopher. He wrote about science. I suppose you could describe him as a polymath, someone who dabbled in a lot of areas. But he was mainly championing the scientific approach to experiments and to inductive reasoning. He was a very powerful uh, champion of inductive reasoning rather than deductive reasoning. Uh, but the quote that they attribute to him goes like this. Nature uh, must be... Nature is to be bound to service, um, hounded in her wanderings, put on the rack, and tortured for her secrets. So nature is to be bound to service, uh, hounded in her wanderings, put on the rack, and tortured for her secrets. 
Now, some people uh, claim that he didn't say that or didn't write that. Others claim he did. Whether he did or not, this particular quotation, which is quite shocking in some ways for the modern person to hear, and maybe it may have been more acceptable in his, in his time, but this quotation seems to me eerily you know, it's a premonition. Because that's, in a sense, what we have done as a culture, as a society. We have put nature on the rack and we have tortured her as far as we can for her secrets. So, just a, one example is many, many times we've conducted experiments on living animals and sometimes we've conducted experiments on living human beings. We have ransacked the earth for her treasures to put them to use, to give us the lifestyle we want and the things that we think we need. And that, of course, includes not just minerals, but fossil fuels. We have uh, domesticated a whole series of animals that we put to our use, mainly for our own feeding on. And the problem is that as we've changed the habitat, so too uh, species that are not much used to human beings have been pushed to the edge and are now risking uh, extinction. We've uh, mined up the fossil fuels and put them to use too. So these are crucial aspects of our, our, our civilization. Uh, through, through fossil fuels, we can live a much more comfortable life, a much more lux luxurious life. We have uh, incredible mobility from the fossil fuels. And because of fossil fuels, we've been able to exploit the earth more. And therefore, human population has ballooned in terms of its size. It, uh, the earth can support more humans because of fossil fuels. And then as a result, we have things going up into the atmosphere. We have the, the whole crisis around climate change, which we've only discovered in the last few decades. And as you all know, we have the uh, extreme weather events, forest fires all over the planet, like we've never seen them before. We've had um, floods. We have the polar ice caps and the glaciers melting and the sea level is rising. So this means that low-lying cities like Venice or Jakarta will almost inevitably go under the water. And also low-lying countries like Bangladesh or some of the islands in the Pacific, Tuvalu, low-level islands will also be you know, flooded. And there will be lots of migrants, of course. <clears throat> and uh, somehow we've managed to acidify the oceans so that coral reefs are becoming bleached. So we see a whole series of effects of, uh, of what we've been doing over several hundred years now, and in particular the last few decades as the whole thing is speeded up. So we see that the human species is clever 
It is ingenious, it is resourceful, but the question is, is it very wise? So one other aspect, it seems to me, is when we consider uh, the relationship between humans and animals. So we tend to feel that we are superior to animals. You know, we, we do so many things they can't do. They're just scratching around for survival, and we have built all these cities and, um, you know, communications and transport and technology and so forth is all very true. But if we look at... Human, the human range is vast compared to that of an animal. And we can at times appear to be a god, but also at times we can appear to be something much less than an animal. As far as I know, animals don't enslave each other. They don't rape or torture. They don't start wars in their own species that decimate the species, and they don't start uh, genocides. So this is uh, peculiar to human beings. <clears throat> so I think with the developments I've just sketched out that uh, we are, as a species, we're very much in need of a wisdom teaching. What we have lacked, we have the, the ingeniousness, the resourcefulness, but we've lacked the wisdom. We haven't had the context to understand properly what it is we were doing, or have been doing. When we think about Francis Bacon, he was apparently a Christian, he believed in what he was doing, he felt nature has been made available by God for us to use. And of course, when the missionaries, Portuguese missionaries, went to Sri Lanka, that's what they told people on the coast, up to that time, monks have been saying, you know, try not to kill, try not to catch too many fish. These missionaries were saying, no, it's all for you. Nature's for you. And you can catch as many fish as you like. God has provided this for you. So what has, you know, to return to the topic of Sangha, what has the Sangha to, to offer? I think that... <clears throat> the lifestyle of restraint and renunciation, the taking of precepts, the preparedness to accept limitations, and to, to give up things, to give up our preferences. This is a very helpful model for, for the society because the crises that we face at the moment are so huge. The only way to really come to terms with those crises and problems is for a, a, a real spiritual growth, a spiritual awakening. And something like the Sangha could serve as a model or at least a, a helpful indicator of the right way to go. Now I remember one other incident when I first encountered Buddhism in Britain. Uh, I was sort of, I just started, I've been on one retreat and then I was mixing with the Hampstead Buddhist group and I had to drive to somebody's house either to, to deliver something or pick something up. I went into this house and there was a young man whom I recognized, maybe he was in the hamster group, and he was walking back and forth in this room, quite a large room, doing walking meditation. And we had a brief conversation. And then he said, 
It's all about letting things die out. And I thought, my God. And uh, I left the house and I was still in a state of shock, letting things die out, because it was so contrary to all the affirmation and um, all, this, all that my culture had told me up to that stage, let things die out. Because we have a culture of affirmation and a culture stuck in the arising uh, state, where we have to uh, assert our identity and cling to those things that we want to continue. Two examples of this, a couple of years ago in a magazine, I remember it was a, a magazine that featured Madonna at the age of 60 and looking very kind of glamorous and trying to be sexy and so on at the age of 60. She couldn't give up uh, that persona. And another in, example would be Rupert Murdoch, the owner of so many newspapers and media outlets, and sitting in his office somewhere in America, somebody goes to interview him and says, Mr. Murdoch, you know, you're now in your 70s. Do you think maybe it's time coming for retirement? And Murdoch said, they can carry me out of here in a box. In other words, he couldn't let go. So what we have with the Buddhist teaching, he offers us a starting point, the starting point of suffering, something that many people can understand, and he gives us a very clear link between suffering and craving. <clears throat> and the point is that when we have, say, the Francis Bacon approach, people are just looking outside of themselves, following, uh, following what their mind tells them, pursuing these discoveries and explorations to the very end. If you like, they're blown by the winds of craving. But with a teaching such as this, of the, the Buddha's teaching, we are asked or enjoined to turn inwards and start to look at what the mind itself is doing, rather than just turning outwards and trying to get what, what the next development will give us. So we have a whole range of things on the horizon now, uh, changing DNA or cloning people or animals, uh, artificial intelligence, robots and so forth. And we just keep going down this path, but uh, never looking at the drives that take us down them. So it's a chance to turn in and look at the craving. If we can start to recognize the attachment, recognize the desire, that's a chance to let go of it and to awaken to how we create our own suffering. And instead of having always, if we can actually let go of some of these drives and identities, then we have a chance, it's a freedom to be not to be somebody, not to be something, and this is an incomparable freedom. I remember, uh, it was only a few weeks ago, it was a moon night, it was raining, and I was walking up and down between the wood stacks uh, at the, at the uh, workshop in the under the shelter. And I just had this 
really wonderful time where I, was, I just felt I was nobody. I was nobody at all, just walking up and down between these wood stacks, being absolutely nobody. I tell you, that's the greatest luxury you can have, being nobody. So the Buddha's example in the course of the Enlightenment was he, he wasn't trying to be anything. He was giving up all his identities. He was letting go of the enslavement to becoming. And he was letting go of all compulsions and neuroses. He was just freeing himself up. And this is the model that we follow. This is the model we try to, to replicate. And it's one that I think the world uh, or society as a whole could well take more notice of. Anyway, I'm getting to the end of this and I'll, I thought I'd finish off by um, reading to you the Ovada Patimukha, the advice that the Buddha gave to the assembled arahants on that evening, on that night, Magapuja. So here it is. <clears throat> Patient forbearance is the supreme austerity. Nibbana is the highest good, say the Buddhas. He is no recluse who harms another, and he who mistreats others is not a summoner. Not to do evil, to cultivate the good, to purify the heart, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. Not to disparage, not to harm. Restraint according to the Patimokha. Moderation in food, dwelling in seclusion, commitment to developing the higher mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So I'd like to end on that note and allow this talk to die out. Uh, wishing you a very pleasant and happy uh, Magha Puja. And may, may your practice bear fruit. I offer these reflections for your consideration. <clears throat>